means the ministry is interfering at Hogwarts. You're not going mad. You're just as sane as I am. I must not tell lies. You seem to be laboring under the delusion that I'm going to... What was the phrase? Come quietly. Hey everyone, welcome to Hogwarts, a podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Hogwarts, a podcast. We are finishing The Order of the Phoenix. (laughs) We are covering chapter 38, The Second War Begins, which (laughs) is kind of an ominous title. It's a fun way to end a book, because it's the beginning. Yep. Elizabeth is back with us. Hi, everyone. Honestly, like, this title is what, when I first got the book, I thought this book was going to be, you know? From start to... Yeah, because this whole book has been like, ooh, everything is hidden in the shadows, and no one believes you, but I, when the books first came out, I was like, Voldemort's back, and now the war's gonna start, and all the chaos is gonna happen, and what's it gonna entail? And then I finished it, and I was like, now I gotta wait for book six to find out. Do you think the Order of the Phoenix for being on the title of the book gets enough, like, runtime in this book? We'll get to all to our breakdown of the book and our wrap-up thoughts towards the end of the non-spoiler. And then we'll deep dive more in our spoiler section. But, uh, yeah, food for thought for, yeah. for later on. Uh, this chapter, however, before we get to our end-of-book wrap-up, there's a lot that yeah, happens. There's so in. much in this chapter. So we start out in the hospital wing and get a recap of how everybody's doing. We get a Harry Draco interaction, which is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> we get a trip down to Hagrid's. We get a couple of interesting conversations between Harry and some other individuals, which we'll get to. And then we the journey home, yeah. that that stereotypical ride back to to London and the Dursleys and all of that. We start out in the hospital wing. Everyone's is still alive. Everyone's alive. That is the good news. Everybody is indeed alive. <laughs> we start off with essentially Hermione reading the Daily Prophet, mm-hmm. which has the big bold headline: "He who must not be named returns." Yeah. And then you have Fudge being quoted in this article, saying everything other than Voldemort. Yeah. Um, I think we have erred as a podcast by not referring to him (laughs) as Lord Thingy. (laughs) I think we really had a misstep there. I feel like when he was being interviewed, he was just so frantically trying to cover up everything and just anxious and just like... I gotta get all this information out that words failed him. And then it was just, Lord, thingy, you know what I'm talking about. Do you think Dumbledore in his 30-minute press briefing of <laughs> of Fudge was just like, use the name. Like, actually say it. I don't know if Dumbledore believes Fudge is a strong enough man to use his name. It says a lot, though. The position matters. So yeah. if, like, the, the Minister of Magic... Is willing to it, say the name. Yeah, it would definitely. It dispel, sets an example. Yeah, I think that would be what a strong leader would do. But I think that having denied his existence or his return for a whole year, and having fear himself, 
for his entire life of this man. I mean, this is this is Fudge now being challenged as a leader in ridiculous ways. I mean, he was saying, like, you know, there's been a mass outbreak of the Dementors, and they're not taking orders from the Ministry anymore, and the fact that there's rumors that Voldemort and the Death Eaters broke into the Ministry, that's a problem. Like, this is now... You have to either come up with a really good excuse as to why you've been lying to the public for a year, or lose your job, like... There's no in between. I mean, there's a difference between leadership and then wartime leadership. Yeah. And big yeah. So this is his trial, I guess, Mm -hmm. Uh, trial by fire. But I I do like how he says, "Yeah, he's back." Also, (laughs) just (laughs) saying, there's been a mess. Uh, revolt of the Dementors from Azkaban. Yeah, not good news. We believe that he that they have joined Lord Thingy. Which is exactly what Dumbledore predicted would happen a year ago. Yeah, yeah. it's not ideal. No. I do like that one of his first moves, though, and this probably isn't his, his first move, but Dumbledore gets all his jobs back. Yeah, he's reinstated as Headmaster of Hogwarts, member of the International Confederation of Wizards, and what I think is most important of the bunch, he is now reinstated as the chief warlock of the Wizengamot. Mm-hmm. He's now running the court that tried Harry at the beginning of this book. Yep. Which he was before. Yep. But how do you think that's... What do you think that's like the first day back? <laughs> like, hey, guys, I'm back. Because there were some people that obviously loved him. Right. Some people feared him. And some were happy he was gone. Some were very happy he was out. I think this is a move that both shows Dumbledore like, okay, this is to kind of make up for the past year. But I think it's also a way to instill some confidence in the public that maybe Fudge is going to be capable. Because if you put Dumbledore back into positions of power, then it's like, okay, you're, you're making smart moves there. I don't know. It's too little too late. So, aside from the article that came out in the Daily Prophet, uh, we get Madame Pomfrey doing her thing. She fixes Ginny's ankle in a heartbeat. She is mending Ron, but he still has some welts from the brain tentacles, and she has a very poignant quote, Madame Mm -hmm. Pomfrey. She says, quote, Thoughts could leave deeper scarring than almost anything else. Very profound. I think it's a very true quote, and it's a more meaningful quote than I think people might realize. Yeah. And it shows, like, stuff's going on within Ron, like, internally that we don't necessarily see whenever he's joking around or, like, you know, being a little moody or whatever. We still don't know if it's specifically, like, his thoughts or... Or the brains. Thoughts from the brain or thoughts of... We don't really know still. It could show up in his nightmares. Still, the sentiment is profound. Yeah. One way or the other. Uh, we also learn that Dolohoff's spell that he unleashed on Hermione, uh, one, they confirmed that uh, it probably would have killed her if it was a verbal spell. Right. Like, if he was able to actually verbalize it, because uh, Hermione had silenced him just before. If he was able to verbalize it, she might not be here right now. Mm-hmm. She's taking up to 10 potions a day. Just to deal with it. I can't imagine, like, like I know Madame Pomfrey has obviously a lot of potions and whatnot at her 
disposal. But I feel like with potions, there's probably like, you know, you have to take them in a certain order. You have to take a certain amount of it and a certain amount of times per day. And, and like, if it sits for too long, it becomes more powerful, like, more potent than it was at a certain dosage. So, like, there's just so much you have to keep track of with that. It's crazy. That's a lot. It's a lot. So, the potency of the spell that he hit her with was some kind of spell like that was something yeah so it was out to kill which we knew because uh, again harry like fully shielded himself from it and still felt some effects of it right that that spell was was nasty uh speaking of nasty we have a swamp that has been (laughs) almost mostly cleared up uh flitwick has cleared out most of Fred and George's swamp in about three seconds it took him to Mm -hmm. swiftly clean it up. But he did leave a patch of it. I love that. He left a patch. so happy. And supposedly his reasoning for leaving a patch was, you know, it's really good magic. Yeah, it was like a monument to Fred and George. I love that so much. I also love the fact that Ron is eating so many chocolate frogs that he said came from the twins and it said he was eating like 14 of them. (laughs) (laughs) like someone needs the chocolate. (laughs) Which, to be fair, Lupin said, eat chocolate after, you know, rough experiences. So maybe he's taking that advice, but I just imagine him stuffing his face. I enjoy that Flitwick was able to clear out the swamp so swiftly after all of the teachers were giving Umbridge so much guff (laughs) about, like, you know, it's not really our job. Yeah. Uh, You know, whatever. Um, And they were able to just clean up most of the... like five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Uh, speaking of Umbridge, she is actually in the same hospital wing <laughs> that the students are in currently. You think she's sitting there listening to their conversation, though? She's conscious. Mm-hmm. Clearly not all there, though. They said she's like, she has leaves in her hair and like twigs, and she's kind of just like staring at the ceiling and not talking as far as they're aware. And everyone's kind of wondering, like, well, how did Dumbledore rescue her from the centaurs without any scratch? He went into the Forbidden Forest alone, which is a difficult thing in general, especially now, Mm -hmm. because the Forbidden Forest is not, it wasn't ever a friendly place. But now it's less friendly because everything's a little on edge in the forest. Well, that and he hired friends. And he hired friends from the centaurs. So the, the centaurs are riled up. In general, they're they're they have a lot to be upset about. Right. And yes, Albus hired friends, which upset them even more. So now you have Dumbledore specifically insulting them. And he was able to walk in there, Mm -hmm. get a essentially a prisoner from them Mm -hmm. and walk out. Mm -hmm. How? How do you think he did it? I have no idea. Do you think he did it by force of the wand or force of the word? Word. You think he outworded them? Yeah. I think they are logical creatures. Yes, they're riled up right now, but I think overall they respect logic and they respect wizards who respect logic. And they recognize that Dumbledore respects them. They might disagree with him about hiring friends, but I feel like he could on some level be like, look, this woman right here, she's awful. Not a fan. That said... Please don't kill her. Let me take her off your hands. Logically, you would be better off without her around you. 
She's much less annoying when she's not near you. I don't know that he uses logic so much, like try to pin them in this corner of I'm out logicing you. <laughs> but I do think we see another example of Albus Dumbledore, the diplomat. Yes. Of, of him. I do. I would agree that he probably talked his way out of this. Because I feel like if he uses magic on his way out, that's just going to oh, force him further. Don't get him. it twisted, though. They didn't attack him for a reason. Well, because they He know. packs a punch. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> like, but I think he's the kind, like, I mean, we know he was talking about with the fountain, how he was, like, all the the creatures in the fountain, like, they have real, like, I mean, the yeah, Umbridge called them near humans, but they have emotions, they have, like, logic, they have, they make their own decisions, we don't make it for them, so I feel like they're sentient enough to recognize like yes Dumbledore is danger yes like we don't like it when wizards use magic against us so we respect the fact that he's not using it against us but we also know his reputation okay so here's my question back at you which is not related to Dumbledore but more to Ron do you think Ron was being a bit of a punk or justified in making the Inappropriate. Inappropriate. I that was agree. inappropriate. I would agree. It made it showed signs of life out of it's her. It's a it's a the low blow. It's a childish, uh, which I get. He's a child, but it's it's an inappropriate remark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the way, Umbridge ultimately, because we're not going to double back on Umbridge, so we'll just clear her story out right here, right now. Umbridge ends up being released from the hospital wing later in this chapter and tries to sneak out the <laughs> castle. However, she had the unfortunate mishap of running into Peeves. I love it so much. (laughs) And Peeves ended up chasing her out of the castle and down the walkway with a a walking stick. And a bag of chalk. Yes, but the walking stick he borrowed from one Professor McGonagall. (laughs) And I do say borrowed. He didn't take that. I I believe she... It was like, here, take it. Yeah. I love my god. He'll be like, oh, I wish I could chase her out too, but he's got my stick. Well, god, I go, you are the goat. I love it so much. I will say one other comment about Umbridge. I like the fact that they were like, oh, Filch is miserable that Umbridge is gone. Like, you just wanted more reasons to be able to torture the students. You can't do that with Dumbledore. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and now, you mentioned Dumbledore hiring friends. We do get a divination, a divination uh, conversation that happens here. Ron comments on the fact that he doesn't care if Trelawney or Ferenz are teaching the subject. It's still trash. One is not really that much better than the other. <laughs> and Hermione, of all people, Hermione, Elizabeth, Hermione Granger, <laughs> pipes up and says, I'm sorry, wait a minute. We just learned that this is a real thing. Like, there's a whole hall of prophecies <laughs> In the Department of Mysteries in the Ministry of Magic. You know what I wrote in my notes? I said, Hermione defends divination equals making Dan feel victorious. Yes, I do (laughs) feel victorious. She's finally figured it out. (laughs) But I think you made this, you made a comment a long time ago Mm. about how the the key to Hermione is she's got to see it. Yeah. It, it has to be tangible to her. You gotta see it to believe it. And the idea of a prophecy in a ball on a shelf with a little placard <laughs> <laughs> that 
that has actual consequences. Yeah. And a whole other bunch of people, including some of the most powerful wizards of the day, put a lot of stock in these things. Yeah. And she doesn't even know Harry's end of it. Yeah. Which Harry reflects on. Mm-hmm. But now that all of that has been made real to her, now all of a sudden, oh, okay, I guess it's real. I think Dumbledore once upon a time considered just doing away with the whole divination class as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a unwise decision. Agreed. I think he should keep the class. However, clearly needs to have better guidelines. It needs some help. From either of them. From either Trelawney or Ferenz, right. I think there are problems with the way it's taught. Because, again, like you, you said, way, 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 way back in the beginning when you defended Trelawney, I mean, she's not wrong that you need the skill to do it, but it's more of a, it's a natural talent that you have to have. It's not some skill that you can grow. You can't base grading off the practical. Right. Well, obviously, the Death Eaters were very very intent on getting their hands on this prophecy. Right. And Harry doesn't want to share that he knows the contents of the prophecy. He doesn't know he doesn't want to share yet that he knows the contents. But he does have an awkward interaction after he leaves the hospital wing. Mm-hmm. And he runs into Draco, Crab, and Goyle. Two of those children's parents were at the Department <laughs> of Mysteries that night. And it's awkward. Yeah. Draco, though, I will say this. Usually Draco has had some childish remarks to Harry, and they go back and forth with some stupid insult, and Mm -hmm. then they drop it or whatever. Draco here's tone has changed. He's not throwing some childish insults anymore. He's throwing threats. Yeah, he's literally threatening to, like, kill Harry. And not in a joking way. Yeah. He means it. Draco's pointing out that the mentors are gone. Right. Like, right. you like think, gonna be in you think they're going to be there for very long? They're going to be out soon. Right. And that's when Harry th- throws out the, okay, well, they might escape, but at least everybody will know how terrible people they are. Right. And then Snape interrupts this <laughs> wonderful back and forth <laughs> as Harry's about to curse him. Yeah. And Harry, your first thought as Snape comes up here is, I hate him. I don't care what Albus says. I hate him. I'm like... I, I, I don't see it. Like, everything you know about what Snape did was appropriate. It's just misdirected blame. He just wants to blame him for Sirius dying. Snape did everything he was supposed to do in that I circumstance. Know, I agree with you completely. Like, Harry, <laughs> just stop. Just stop with the anger towards Snape. I was like, this is a little misplaced, sir. <laughs> Maybe it's also in part because he knows that Snape doesn't mourn Sirius. The way he does. Maybe. No, I think it goes back to a lot of what you said about the egging on mm-hmm. and the shots that Snape would constantly toss at Sirius. But nope. Objectively, he did everything he was supposed to do as a member of the Order in that circumstance. Well, he doesn't help Harry's hate because he tries to take 10 points away from <laughs> Gryffindor right there. But the hourglass is empty, so he can't take points away. But to be fair... Ten points. I think that's fair. <laughs> McGonagall comes in at this point, returns. She makes her return to Hogwarts after being attacked during the astronomy exam, if we remember that. Which feels like forever ago because it was chapters ago, but technically that'd just be like last week. Yeah, probably a couple days. Yeah. Yeah. And she takes it upon herself 
after making Crab and Goyle lift her stuff to her <laughs> office, <laughs> McGonagall takes it upon herself to add points uh, to the Gryffindor uh, count, and she gives 50 points apiece to each of the students that helped alert the world to Voldy's presence. So that ends up being 250 <laughs> to Gryffindor and 50 to Ravenclaw begrudgingly. She's like, oh yeah, I guess Luna's technically Ravenclaw. Okay. Then minus 50. the 10 for Snape. And then she she respectfully was like, and you wanted to take 10 from him. <laughs> That's fair. It's Harry. <laughs> so... <laughs> He was about to curse um, Malfoy, though, yeah. And then Harry just does his best backpedal out of there <laughs> and heads over to Hagrid's, um, who offers him some dandelion juice. Yeah. Thoughts on dandelion juice? I don't want to drink any. Yeah, I'm a big I'm a big no on that. I, <laughs> I can't imagine that would be good. Conversation gets interesting, because Hagrid only wants to talk about one thing, and Harry wants to not talk about one thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the same topic. Yeah. And Hagrid does have this one quote. He goes, I knew Sirius longer than you did. He died in battle. That's the way he would have wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Harry gets angry and was like, well, he didn't want to go at all. Mm-hmm. And Tiger's like, no, you're right. He didn't want to go at all. But he wasn't going to stay at home while he knew you were in danger. That's not how he works. Yeah. How do you think... Uh, this conversation goes between Hagrid and Harry. I think it's good on Hagrid's part to talk about Sirius in this way because it's realistic and to a degree it's comforting to know that, like, yeah, there's nothing you could have done. Like, he made his choices. Those were his choices. Those choices weren't made for him. He would have, I mean, imagine if he had stayed home and Harry had died or gotten injured. He would beat himself up like crazy. So, yeah, this is like, I'm trying to comfort you in a logical way, but Harry is just so distraught right now and trying to ignore his emotions. I mean, he's literally trying to avoid anyone who ever brings up Sirius. That's why he left the hospital wing, because Hermione and Ron started talking about him so it's like if if harry's not willing to process his thoughts yet then this conversation can't go anywhere but i think haggard was doing a good thing and attempting to yeah i think haggard was in a good place here and i don't think he overstepped his bounds mm-hmm. um i think it's good to remind harry that like Hey, I knew him too. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot more actual time with him. Maybe that's a confrontational thing to say is like, hey, I knew him longer than you. Mm-hmm. I maybe, think you probably said it in a gentle way. Maybe though. he could have said it just like, I've known him for a long time mm-hmm. and just left it there. Mm-hmm. Regardless, the point is there's more people trying to work out their feelings about losing a friend right. than just Harry. And you can process with them. You can share the memories that you have of that person. That helps you through your grief. As the Harry talk. just had issues in Dumbledore's office about, like, conversations never had. Mm-hmm. All the things he wished he talked to Sirius about. Here's an opportunity to learn something about Sirius from someone who's known him longer. Well, it's the same way. You know? It was the same logic with his parents, right? Like, 
Hagrid gave him the photo album and he was looking through and was like, okay, now I'm paying attention to the other people in the picture and there are stories there that I could learn about my parents from these people. And it's, it, yeah, it's the same thing of here's a chance to learn about Sirius's past and his thoughts and maybe what he was like as a student and all that fun stuff. And you're just blocking it out because you can't process I'm, your grief right now. And I'm not saying he... Like, that's wrong of him. Oh, no, no. Because, no I mean, everybody processes trauma and grief in their own ways, in their own time. And that's acceptable, and that is more than fine. Mm-hmm. All we are saying is this is an opportunity for two people to work through their grief with each other and talk it out a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that it didn't work out that way. Harry also says part of it, he said, like, a reason why he feels like he doesn't know if he wants to be alone or if he wants to be with people is that he has felt isolated since everyone, since the talk with Dumbledore. So like an invisible barrier separated him from the rest of the world. He was, he had always been a marked man. And it was still really hard to believe that his life has to include or end in murder. So it's like, yes, you're processing serious, but you're also processing your own fate that hasn't happened yet, but you know because of the prophecy it's going to happen. And the fact that he hasn't told anyone about it other than Dumbledore means, like, he can't talk through that either. Well, it's, I mean, that prophecy is a lot. So he he, he talks about how everything's different. Mm-hmm. Everything is different now than it was a week ago. And not just because of Sirius. It's because, like you said, his life now either will include or end in murder. Knowing how Harry is reacting with that now, do you think Dumbledore was still wrong to wait until he turned 15 to tell him? Or should he have told him earlier at like 11 and stuff? Because if Harry is feeling like I'm not a part of this world, I don't belong, I'm, I'm both with them and not with them, like I'm alive but I'm not included. I, th- I, think, I think he probably should have told him at the end of his first year. At the beginning of his first year, absolutely not. He's got a lot on his plate. You're a wizard. <laughs> like, that's a lot in itself. But at the end of the first year, you have that first encounter with a man who's clearly trying to harm you. Mm-hmm. Now you should probably at least fill him in a little bit. I think I probably would have done it when he turned 13. I feel like 13 is a good... I mean, you're getting to be a teenager now, right? You have two years of... I know the student, and I've learned about him, and he's learned about me to a degree. We've had our little bonding sessions at the end of he's the year. He's faced Voldy twice by then. I know. <laughs> well, In technically, person. technically three, right? That's a baby. Got that, too. Well, yeah. For when Alice second, comes back into his life at 11, when should he tell him? I, I think that... He's not wrong that Harry was really young at 11, and it was just a miracle he survived. I think with the Chamber of Secrets, that was concerning, obviously, but again, glad you're alive. I think if he had turned 13, it could be like, look, I gave you one final summer to be a kid, and now you're 13, and now here, I'm going to put this burden on you. Sorry that I have to do it, but here we go. Especially because that, at that point in time, it's like, oh, Sirius Black, the mass murderer, he's out. Then it could be, if we are truly believing at that time that Sirius is the bad guy, well, you should probably know this might happen. Here you go. 
Here's a prophecy. Well, you're talking about how Harry feels isolated and different after hearing the prophecy. And the other thing about this is it's hard for him to even be alone right now because after that article in the Daily Prophet drops, Mm -hmm. every head in the castle is turning in his direction when he walks. Which he's used to. I mean, he's had that before. This is this different. This time it's different. This yeah. is very different. Yeah. He said... It's he, not some long begone thing when you were a baby. Well, You've done this twice in two years. Right. Because not only did the prophet come out with their article of their statement about what happened just like last night, they came out with the interview from the Quibbler again. Right. Which brought everything back up again from the graveyard scene right. in book four. Right. So now everybody's got, oh, you did this twice? Right. Like, forget the chambers. No one really knows what happened in the Chamber of Secrets. No one knows what happened with the Sorcerer's Stone. Right. This is now two very public events. Well, this is, I mean, he's used to all the attention being on him for other than his popularity, but like, oh, you're the heir of Slytherin. Oh, you lost us all those house points. Oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. But he said that this was the first time he's like, I don't, yesterday I would have given anything for them to know that I wasn't lying. And now I don't care. I just want Sirius back. I do want to just make a point that I know I'm advocating for Harry to talk it out, (laughs) to talk it out with Hagrid, to talk it out with his friends, anybody who's close that he trusts. A wizard therapist? Yeah, but that doesn't exist. <laughs> doesn't exist. <laughs> but I, I also want to say that, you know, it's okay to be alone sometimes, too. Yeah. It's it's not a bad thing for him to just want some space so he can himself process, process this. I liked the scene of him sitting by the lake and reflecting of when he saved Sirius from the Dementors. And I said he was he wiped his face as he was walking away back to the castle. It's like, you got a chance to cry by yourself, and that's really important. It is. There's some bad timing that happens after he walks back to the castle because they're getting their stuff ready to go because the feast is tonight, the closing feast, and then they're off to the Hogwarts Express to go back home the next day. So they're packing, they're getting ready, and Harry stays behind, and he's taking a while to get his stuff all packed, and he stumbles upon a package package at the bottom of his trunk. And he reflects that, oh, wait, Sirius gave this to me with the instructions, quote, if you need me, end quote. And he opens it, and it's a two-way mirror. And the note says, just say the name, or just say my name, and I'll essentially pop up in the mirror, and you can talk with me. It's how James and I spoke when we were in separate detentions. (laughs) It's like FaceTiming for... Us. And I'm just sitting here reading this. I'm like, this is maybe the worst timing for him to find this package. It's just the saddest thing that he waited this long to open it. Drives me nuts. If you stayed in our spoiler section, sometimes you've heard me complain about how it drives me nuts that he waited this long. But oh, I know it made me cry the first time I read this. This is this is so unfortunate and sad, and I feel so bad for him. Okay, the first time I read this, if we're going the first time, uh, I probably even forgot about the the, mirror. the dang mirror. Mm-hmm. But now it it's such a gut punch of just like this could have solved a lot of problems. Well, then it's even worse because it's like he tries to use it 
and he tries and he's like I, I got my hopes up I was so ready for it and then he said how like well no it didn't work because Sirius didn't have the mirror when he took it with him through the archway so sad do yeah think, do you think it could have worked if he had had it nope I agree no I do not <laughs> imagine <laughs> if it could though you could see into like the other side I don't know <laughs> He then hurdles it back into the trunk where it breaks. I hate that. It's his last gift that he ever got from his godfather. I, and you uh, break it. I dislike it, too. I, I don't know uh, why he doesn't use Reparo on it afterwards. Like, I, I get that it's the, it's the emotion of the moment, but it's like, fix it. Yeah. <laughs> That's your last gift. I don't love that he, he throws it and breaks it, but he's struggling. Yeah. <laughs> And that did not help. No, <laughs> like that only put him into a more negative, depressed mindset. It's not the last time he got his hopes up, though. No, this next part is brutal. He runs into nearly headless Nick uh, in the hallways. Who's, like, actively avoiding him. <laughs> and Harry wants to ask him about death and about being a ghost. And Nick mentions how he's obviously been expecting this uh, because whenever someone loses someone, they always try to find him and talk to him about this. And he does give us a little insight. He says, quote, "Uh, wizards can leave an imprint of themselves upon the earth to walk palely where their living selves once trod. But very few wizards actually choose that path. Which makes sense that they don't, because he said, like, you know, all a ghost can really do is walk around and talk. You can't eat. You don't sleep. You can't. I mean, I know they have some emotions, but it seems to mostly be mournful. He says the melancholy joke of, like, I'm really neither here nor there. Well, that and he was like, Like, oh, we're both late to the feast. Well, I'm late in a different sense. Like, I like ghost humor. It's morbid. It's funny. I enjoy it. But, like, it's so depressing. But he says he was afraid of death. Mm-hmm. So he also says, I, I don't really know what you're trying to get from me because I don't know the secrets of death. Yeah, he said, I, I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I believe learned wizards studied the matter in the Department of Mysteries. Yeah. So here's here's my thing when I first read this talking about first readings mm-hmm. when I first read this initially I felt hope like Harry does mm-hmm. I was like ooh this is another avenue maybe we can get this or ooh maybe there is gonna be like some happy positive twist mm-hmm. on the end of this now when I read it I feel sadness because well, it's an act of desperation it's an act of desperation and I feel where that act of desperation is coming from because I now at an older age have also lost right. loved ones and right. I feel that loss and that want to see them again. Mm-hmm. But I feel like some also might feel anger at Harry uh, for not being able to accept and well, that are wanting it for serious. Like, and I, wanting I, it for serious. This whole yeah. scene, you're right. The whole scene is just, it's so sad because you do get the sense of Harry so desperate for to see Sirius again and to to put on him this, you know, this almost curse of becoming a ghost. 
And then you think of, from Nick's perspective, it has to be painful to have to have this conversation every single time a student comes to him with, you know, a loss. And it reminds him of his own death. It reminds him of his own choice. And be like, did I make the right choice? Because this is what I have become. I'm neither here nor there. And I see students grow up and then they die. And I don't know what they go on to. And now I'm stuck in this way till kingdom come. Like, I'm just going to be a ghost. So it, it's just this this very sad so sad conversation to be having right now. And sad is such a trivial word. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, I believe we say it so often, we don't really understand the true emotion behind it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like something like this hits at your core of like real sadness. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like any ghost truly finds joy in being a ghost. I mean, Moaning Myrtle is constantly wailing about her life or her afterlife. Bloody Baron is a little ornery. Just a bit, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sapphire seems nice and happy. I, I wonder to what degree of when you're a ghost, like, do you have to actively make the choice to be positive? Because it, it seems like Nick tries but so often he's the butt of a joke and he is mourning his own fate of... It probably doesn't help that he's known as nearly headless. Right. I mean, to go through <laughs> all that pain and then to have to be bullied in your afterlife, that sucks. Um, I don't it, it just doesn't seem... I mean, and then you consider Ben's. He's just... Still working. Still working for forever. It's still- like... Still getting that punch oh, card clocked in, yeah. God, as a teacher, like, oh, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> the other thought I have with this, I know Harry is so desperate for another variation of Sirius to talk to. And I just wonder, like, could he have had a portrait made to talk to the portrait? The problem with the portrait is the only place that that portrait could conceivably be is at Grimwald Place. And I feel like if there's one thing Sirius Black would have put in his will, <laughs> get me up out of that house. <laughs> Probably right. He would want nothing to do with that. Um, Maybe he burned his portrait a long time ago. Well, I don't. I also if I think he ever had one made. Well, I think the the magic of that house because there is an innate magic of the house. Mm-hmm. I think like when his name. And picture got burned off the family tree. That burned away too? That option was never on the table for him. The problem is 11 plus years of his life were taken away in Azkaban. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like he had no opportunity to leave his mark on the wizarding world Mm -hmm. in any other way, Mm -hmm. um, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't think the portrait was ever an option. But Yes, if Harry had thought of that, he would have gone down that avenue, too, of like, wait a minute, I can paint. No, it's can't. a good thing there's no, like, magical art department to he goes go to. The, to. <laughs> he goes to the fat lady next. Hey, how do you exactly? <laughs> Who were you in real life? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of awkward conversations to have with people, Luna Lovegood's always good for an awkward <laughs> conversation. However, this conversation, I think, is really good. 
So Harry runs into Luna next, and Luna mentions that she's lost all of her possessions because people have taken them. Yeah. She they says, bully her so bad. She says it happens every year and denies Harry's help because they'll turn up eventually. They always do. You know, I'll just have to pack in the morning. And Harry starts to feel something else for the first time since all of this has really dropped. Since Sirius died, since the conversation with Albus, he starts to feel sorry for Luna. I feel like part of that is also because she's she flat out said, like, yeah, I know people call me Looney Love Good. I'm like, the fact that you're aware that that's the nickname tells you that, like, people have said that directly to her face. And to recognize that, yeah, people are stealing her stuff and hiding it from her just to bully her. Well, it also shows her acknowledging the Looney Love Good thing. It also shows that she doesn't ignore it all the time. Mm-hmm. It hits it home. Yeah. It hits home. It's hard. And, and I, Harry said that's not an excuse. You shouldn't do that to people. Right. I feel like this is an interesting way for Harry to experience some, at least the beginning levels of healing. Mm-hmm. Because he is, one, acknowledging someone else's feelings. Mm-hmm. He didn't acknowledge Hagrid's just before when he was like, hey, I'm hurting too. I knew Sirius a long time. Mm-hmm. He didn't acknowledge those. But now he's feeling sorry for Luna. Feeling for someone else has started to heal himself a little bit. Maybe because it's 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 not related to Sirius, so it distracts him from Sirius. But it's also the recognition of I'm not the only one right now who's going through something, and maybe I can help you with your thing, which can in turn, in a way, help me heal from mine. He also remembers that she is one of the few others that he knows of that can see Thestrals. Mm -hmm. So he thinks to ask Luna, who who did you, like, who did you see Mm -hmm. die? Or who close to you died? And she says her mother died while experimenting with spells. I think part of what makes this so good for Harry is to hear her talk so nonchalantly about it. Like, yes, obviously this, she said like, oh, it still hurts sometimes and I still miss her, but I have my dad. But obviously enough time has passed for her to be able to speak openly about it. So in a way it kind of shows Harry, like you can get to that point too. Well, her, point. her acknowledging for sure that the experience of it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she does still feel sad about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, the event was horrible. I still feel sad about it. Which gives him permission to continue to feel sad whenever he wants to or needs to. And that's okay. But there's more to life still. Mm-hmm. There's more to look forward to. There's more to go forward with. Um, and I think the message really hit home for Harry. And then, you know, she does give him a little ounce of hope Mm -hmm. at the end of this by saying like, well, we'll see them again someday. Yeah. They were just lurking out of sight. That's all you heard them behind the veil. She's referring to the veil. Yeah. She mentions like, oh, you heard the voices too near the veil. Like Mm -hmm. they're there. Is she referring to proof of an afterlife? I think so. Like she's just referring to like this. I don't want to call it like a heaven or a hell. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or even a purgatory for that matter, because mm-hmm. that might be what it is. <laughs> if it's any afterlife, it might be odds on more of a purgatory. But she, yeah, she's referring to she believes, and maybe more firmly or newly after her experience in the Department of Mysteries, that there's proof of an afterlife. There's at least a beyond where people go in their afterlife and you'll join them again at some point and you can talk to them again at that point. Which Harry said it did feel like weight had been lifted out of his stomach after that conversation, which is why Luna Lovegood is fantastic and everyone loves her because she's amazing. She's good at vulnerability and accepting herself. And when you're not in that group setting and having to worry about what everyone else is thinking about Or try about to you, ignore. Or try to ignore what everyone else is thinking about you. Like, I mean, Harry, as much as he loves Hermione and Ron, when it's those two, especially Ron and, like, you know, Ginny's around or the twins are around or whatever, like, you do worry about how you come across. But I think with Luna, you know she doesn't care how you come across. She'll accept you regardless. So it's kind of freeing to be able to speak openly about stuff. Two kind of poignant conversations that we have towards the end of this chapter, Mm -hmm. which kind of interesting. Yeah, he needed it. So we're getting ready to leave Hogwarts and Harry's getting on the train and then is immediately ambushed (laughs) by Draco, Crabbe and Goyle, which could have been really, really bad. Yeah. However, the DA happens to be right in the area and hit them with a barrage of spells that Harry describes as turning them into the equivalent of slugs. I love how they're like, oh, their mothers will think that they've had an improvement. (laughs) Crab specifically. I think it was like crab or goyle specifically. Yeah. um, Because I think Ron mentions like, oh, Draco's mom's not going to be happy about this. (laughs) Crabs, however. (laughs) Um, They mentioned how they just leave them there to ooze. It makes me think there should be more supervision on the train than they have. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, we do get some updates on other things going on. Uh, we get uh, a Cho and Harry kind of interaction. As and a, Marietta. She's as, there too. As they glance at each other. And uh, we find out that Cho is now dating Michael Corner. Mm-hmm. To which Ron goes, I'm sorry, Ginny, weren't you dating Michael Corner? And she goes... Yeah, Quidditch didn't work out so well, and he was feeling down about it, so... So she ditched him. That's, so he ditched him. Word. I like these children's relationships. Like, do you not talk to each other? Like, Cho just being like, oh, red f- embarrassment, and look away real quickly. Like She doesn't have to. She doesn't have to tell it's her business. Goes, but, like, you... I don't know. I feel like her and Harry should have been. Should have Do you go up to all of... your exes and be like, I'm dating this person? No, but I feel like they could have had a conversation before she started dating somebody else. I feel like she could have done better closure here, but whatever. Marietta is covering up her sneak pimples. They're still there. That is the important thing from this interaction. Not that Ginny is now dating Dean Thomas. No. That Ron uh, gets Ron, aggressively yeah, upset. Yeah, he appeased the whole chessboard. Like, Calm down, sir. Gosh. So after uh, all of the children and having their their love lives aired out on the, <laughs> on the train, uh, the train arrives mm-hmm. and Harry gets off to see, um, Harry departs the train to see Moody 
Tonks, Lupin, Arthur, Molly, Fred, and George. Oh. All waiting to greet them. And it's, first of all, he just feels overwhelmed by all of that presence. Mm -hmm. And then Moody goes, uh, Moody, Lupin, and Arthur are like, we need a chat with the Dursleys. And Harry's like, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> and uh, the Moody-Vernon interaction, let's just focus on that right now. Because... <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> he has some great quotes. <laughs> First quote is, um, I expect what you're not aware of would fill several books. Mm -hmm. Which is just a great quote by Moody. And it eventually gets to the point where the adults in the order are like, if we don't hear from Harry in three days, we will send someone to go looking. If we hear that he has been mistreated in any way, we will show up on your doorstep. And Vernon ends up going like, are you threatening me, sir? And Moody's like, yes, I am. <laughs> like, oh, I'm so glad you caught on. I very much am. Glad you got that. I, I particularly like Petunia just avoiding looking at Tonks because she has purple hair at the moment. It seems like, to upset her the most. <gasps> How yeah. dare she? Yeah, that seems to upset her the most for sure. <laughs> yeah, and then it ends up with Harry leading the way back to uh, the Dursleys' car after the Dursleys are flabbergasted at the, <laughs> the love, company that Harry keeps. I love so much that they did this for him, though, especially considering what happened last summer. This is what he needs. I'll talk about people that he probably needs to have a chat with is Lupin. Mm -hmm. Lupin is probably a person that he should, you know, write an owl to and be, just be like, hey, can we just talk yeah. about Sirius? Tell me stories about your friends because they're important people in my life. I want to know more. Yeah. So <sighs> that is how this ends. book ends. So really quick, uh, I know we're running long on this non-spoiler, but just give a, a recap, a brief recap of some things that jumped out at you in this book, uh, things that really impacted you. I know you said that it's your favorite. favorite. Yeah, I still think it gets the bad rap of being too much angst, 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 angst. Yes, it was full of a lot of angst, but I think it's important to show for Harry for his development. I think it's very realistic of his development as a teenager, so I'm glad that she did that. I love the Department of Mysteries. I think if we saw more of that, it would be great. Because um, I really think there's a lot of really cool things to dive into there. I love the DA. I love Harry teaching like in the DA, and I, I think it's really cool to see him in that position of helping other kids fight back and, and you know, defend themselves. As much as I hate her, it's fun to see Umbridge because she's the worst villain in the whole series as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I love how, how angry she makes me, and I think that just shows how well-written she is. And I love Luna because I think you're like we said that she's a vulnerable character, but she's true to herself. And it's nice to see a Ravenclaw who isn't necessarily like 
you know, stuck up and just so focused on book smart stuff. It's she's her own person and she's a weirdo and she loves being a weirdo. And I love how much death is explored in this book, whether it be the festivals or within the Ministry of Magic. The, the sets the tone for the Wizarding War that's to come. I think it's important. Yeah, um, this is also my favorite book in the series. So I know you and I get so often the weird looks when we say that mm -hmm. uh, because of... People don't like it. People don't like it for a couple of reasons. Umbridge makes them uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Because they feel like an anger towards it. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that Umbridge makes you feel such indignation towards her is brilliant writing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I can get an emotional reaction reading a book I think is fantastic. Every single time, too. And, yeah, just the hem-hems yeah. when they come in. Like, that's all you get. <laughs> and you already know there's this dread yeah. hanging over it is brilliant. Yeah. And... Harry's emotions get a lot of attention. And I think this podcast at times has been very critical of Harry's emotions throughout the book and uh, throughout the rest of the books as well, for that matter. <laughs> but I think what's important to take away from this book is the fact that emotions are real mm -hmm. and they're valid and this child has been through more than what most people can ever imagine, let alone actually go through, which is what Dumbledore refers to in their conversation. And I think it's really important to kind of put his emotions into the context. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because, I mean, because emotions can lead to very severe consequences. Like he has depending on how you react to them. In the, early in the book, I think he has every right to be angry. Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the book, he has every right to feel angsty because everyone's calling him a liar. They're mm -hmm. thinking he's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's getting tortured repeatedly. Like, yes. yeah, he has every right to be like. Well, also being like, hey, Joe's over there. Can I have feelings for her? Well, you're also going through, obviously, with the Harry and Cho moments. And the obviously the conversation we just had with them on the train about relationships. Obviously, the kids are growing up. They're they're maturing and they're entering in some other emotions that they're honestly not used to having themselves. Yeah. And how do they deal with those emotions? Which I think is done very realistically, based on my interactions with teenagers. Right, and I think it's. Foolish, and I said this in the last chapter as well when Dumbledore was kind of making this point for me, of we forget what it was like to be that age. Yeah. And I think in this book, she does a very good job of illustrating emotional mood swings mm -hmm. and the kind of awkwardness, that goes awkwardness and naivety that kind of goes with being a teenager. And I think it would do us well to kind of remember that, hey, we were once like that. Whether you yep. like to believe it or not, yep. we were once we were like that. We were all stupid little teenagers. <laughs> so um, it's important to put context in everything. And as far as all the other stuff, I will pause on all of that. 
and we will get back into kind of a more deeper dive into the spoiler section, breaking down some different plots in the book. I do want to start off with an actual spoiler from this chapter, and we'll also look ahead to book six. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, so we are back with the spoiler section of chapter 38, the last chapter in The Order of the Phoenix. Before we get to some talking points uh, from the book and our look ahead to book six, The Half-Blood Prince, um, I did want to bring up something uh, in relation to Harry and Nearly Headless Nick's discussion that we couldn't mention in the non-spoiler <laughs> um, because we get a little bit more added depth to this discussion in book seven. We get a little bit more interaction with the Deathly Hallows. Yeah, the Resurrection Stone. Which, yes, the Resurrection Stone in general, but all three are gifts from death. Mm-hmm. They're made from death, mm-hmm. by death. You know, Nick says he's afraid of death, and he chose no. Mm-hmm. The Resurrection Stone, like you brought up, the Resurrection Stone is interesting because in the Tale of Three Brothers, you get the idea of that person doesn't want to be there. Right, they're just filled with this like mournful sadness to the point yeah. where the other person's like, okay, I'd rather die by suicide in order to join you in the afterlife and stop your your unhappiness at being in the mortal realm again. Right. Harry trying as best as he can to try to bring Sirius back, mm-hmm. whether it's through the veil, as a ghost, as a portrait, like you brought up, <laughs> like some, a way to... Hold on. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think Sirius would want that. Like Hagrid said mm-hmm. earlier, if he were to go, this is how he would have wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Well, like honor their wishes. And Harry says, well, he wouldn't have wanted to go at all. Well, maybe not this particular minute, mm-hmm. but Sirius would want to go at some point. Right. I wonder if to a degree this experience is part of the reason why Harry is able to handle the Resurrection Stone appropriately. This experience with Sirius teaches Harry that the dead should stay dead, which is why when he uses the Resurrection Stone, it works so well for him because it's like, I'm joining you guys. I'm not bringing you back to join me. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it goes back to the tale of the three brothers, which we'll get Get to to. (laughs) later. Uh, we're not going to break down the whole tale of the three brothers right now, but we'll get there. But in context to this chapter, the idea of like, oh, Sirius is going to be a ghost and he's going to like come right through the wall right. and start talking it, to it's me. It's more of a, a selfish desire that would not make Sirius happy. If Sirius Black was depressed being in Grimwald Place, could, <laughs> you, imagine, Azkaban, like... could you imagine him not being able to eat, to drink, <laughs> to hug Harry? Yeah. Yeah. To, like, actually physically help him when in Or, need? like, to watch him grow up and die at some point and then to still be stuck here. 
Like, here, you're thinking short-term, not long-term. Yeah. So, anyway, that's a small spoiler discussion from (laughs) earlier topics. But wrapping up uh, this book, one thing I really wanted to get to, we've kind of tiptoed around it already, is first time reading this book versus Mm -hmm. this current Mm read-through. I don't know if you remember some of your first read-throughs of this book or your first read-through, but has it changed? I've read them so many times that they kind of... Blur together. together is what was my first versus all the other ones. Mine, mine specifically were, I remember identifying with Harry so much. I mm-hmm. understood his angst. I felt his indignation at everybody staring at him and being like, oh, you're a liar, you're crazy, you're nuts, we don't believe you, blah, 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 blah. And I remember being as angry as he was while reading that and being like, are you kidding me? This like, from what happened in the graveyard, this is so unfair, the injustice of this. And then with Umbridge, oh my gosh. So I remember reading it the first time through and being very much in Harry's shoes. And I think now upon this current read through, um, don't get me wrong, I very much still understand where he's coming from. And I get that context, like what I was speaking about at the, the end of the non-spoiler. Mm-hmm. But now I have <laughs> some years <laughs> to reflect on. And I'm like, there is so much depth to all that Harry's feeling and all the circumstances surrounding all of it. Like, there is so much. I agree with you that when I first read it, it was like the perfect time to read it because we were very, very close to Harry's age. I think we were maybe a year younger than Harry at the time the book came out. And I think that as teenagers, you feel things so deeply, like every emotion, regardless if it's anger or love or indignation or embarrassment or anxiety, it's you feel it to an extreme depth. And reading it at the time, it was like, oh my gosh, I, when I cry, I'm, I'm bawling. When I'm embarrassed at like the Joe Harry date, like I'm secondhand embarrassment. It's strong or like anger at Umbridge for what she's doing. It is so, so powerful. And I think maybe your teenage years are the best time to read this the first time through just so you can truly understand the extent of what Harry's going through. But I agree with you too, as an adult, as a teacher, um, now when I look at it, I, I see my own students in him and I see their reactions to be very, very similar to his reactions. And there's the part of me that wants to like help, but there's also the part of me that understands you have to go through that depth of emotions in order to grow. And this whole book is a growing process for Harry. It's important. So we get a lot of Harry's emotions mm-hmm. through this book. And we get the, get the whole roller coaster. And we get the whole roller coaster. <laughs> and, you know, we start out the book with his friends tiptoeing around him because they're worried about him exploding. Mm-hmm. We get Dumbledore at the end of it, like saying, bring it on. Mm -hmm. Like you're not even angry yet. Mm -hmm. 
like wait until I say what I'm about to say then. And then crying over it too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you kind of bookend with Harry being upset. It's interesting that he starts off the book feeling isolated and alone and he ends the book feeling isolated and alone for completely different reasons. Yeah. It's a good point. At the same time, he starts off very much physically alone. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the book, he's embraced by Everything. a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. Like, here's proof that we do care about you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we'll show up and we'll support you and we'll be here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also them acknowledging their faults at the beginning of this book yeah. <laughs> by not being there for him and isolating him and putting him on an island. And, and how then, dangerous that was as a consequence. Yeah. And I think it's adults learning too, like, oh, okay, you know what? That was a mistake. Yeah. We were wrong. Yeah. And 100%. We have to do better. Speaking of those adults, mm-hmm. The Order of the Phoenix, the title of this book, mm-hmm. Harry Potter and The Order of the Phoenix. Do they get enough, like, run in this? <laughs> Are they actually, like. Well, I feel like it was probably a better title choice than Harry Potter and Dumbledore's Army because that would. That would lead fans to have a whole different interpretation of what the book's going to be about. That'd be a really interesting That'd title. really, I think the fans would be disappointed if they had that as a title and then that was not what the book was, you know? Hey, but to be fair, I mean, the Dumbledore, Dumbledore's army got more run than the Order of the Phoenix did. Well, also because they're at Hogwarts for a lot of it. I don't know. I, I think the Order of the Phoenix, what we saw of them was really fun. I like the introduction of Tonks. I think she's a really fun character. And it's nice to see Moody as actually Moody instead of Barty Crouch Jr. Right, right. Um, I think to a degree, too, there's the acknowledgement that there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that the Order was doing. And I think it sets the stage for all the stuff they're about to do. I guess you could argue they're also kind of a reflection of Voldemort. If Voldemort were more out in the open during this book, maybe they would also be more out in the open. But Secret Headquarters is fun. <laughs> I really enjoy the makeup of the Order of the Phoenix. I think it's an interesting group of people that Aldous has recruited to this Especially group. since there's like there's the those who remember and those who are new to the cause mm-hmm. and seeing the different dynamics between the two is really interesting. Yeah. I, it's a good, I guess it's a good setup to what's to come. Like you said, Dude, now that you mentioned Dumbledore's army, I'm like, actually would Dumbledore's army be a better title to this book? <laughs> you can make an argument. I just feel like fans would see that and be like, Oh, we're fighting back this book. And then like, yeah, we're gonna see some battles and all that, and then it's like, oh well, no, he's he's still hidden. But they are, they do get, they get well, trained and the they battle. <laughs> That's literally the book. Maybe they could have called it Harry Potter and Umbridge in Charge or something. Umbridge, this isn't a sitcom from like the nineteen eighties. <laughs> Going Charles Harry in Charge. Potter and Umbridge sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but. No, I think Order of the Phoenix is, it, is it, both mysterious and it, fun. It does have and, a ring to it. Yeah. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix has a ring to it. But um, Especially with the lore of, of Phoenix. It's interesting, Order of the Phoenix, 
like I know obviously Phoenix is is related to Dumbledore, but the idea of a Phoenix rising again and being able to continue to fight back. Even I, after a killing spell. I'm like, going to pull a U. Are you ready for this? Oh, what are you doing? This should be a pull. Uh, okay. Which title do you like better for book five? <laughs> Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix or Harry Potter and Dumbledore's Army? I'm going to say Order of the Phoenix. So we do get the DA. We do get Dumbledore's Army. And we do see some growth mm-hmm. with some students. We see some growth in Ron. We see some growth in Neville particularly so much growth in Neville and uh you know I've been on the record throughout this book as saying like this is a low-key Neville book Mm -hmm. where he shows an immense amount of character growth well I mean god just the scene in St. Mungo's is heartbreaking because that depth in just one tiny little scene he barely says anything right but just like the act of putting that gum wrapper in his pocket and looking defiant to the kids as if they're going to make fun of him. It's like, there's a side to Neville that you never see at school. And then, yeah, like his, his growth and the defensive um, skills and going to the ministry and, and seeing his parents torturer. Yeah. Like be released. There's so much to Neville. He's the only other student left standing mm-hmm. at the Department of Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Him and Harry. Mm-hmm. Neville Longbottom is there standing at the end of the Department of Mysteries fight. I mean... I mean, think about how many times Harry had to pair with Neville just because no one else wanted to work with him in the DA. I was like, that... Maybe that made him maybe that, the stronger one. You're right. Maybe <laughs> that was in Neville's favor. Yeah. Of... Uh, getting that glow up, as we say. On the... <laughs> uh, no. Um, yeah, I think Neville's been absolutely tremendous. And we get L- Luna's obvious introduction mm-hmm. to the Harry Potter fandom in this book. I feel like it's very difficult to introduce a new character to a fandom that's so, 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 so strong. Because if you don't nail it, then people hate that person. And I think she did a really good job with making Luna become a fan favorite. Yeah, I think it's... The moment I think she starts endearing herself to the fandom is honestly this chapter. Mm -hmm. This last chapter, when she has that conversation with Harry. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's, it's Harry actually understanding Luna for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then we, as readers, are understanding Luna for the first time. Right, you're not just dismissing her. You're, like, you're everybody else has done the rest of this book. Yeah. I mean, Hermione is not great about it. Ginny's even a little aloof about it. Mm-hmm. Ron's bad. Even Neville is like, I don't really want to be seen with her. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> you don't really take Luna seriously. Mm-hmm. Even in the Department of Mysteries, where she is holding her own, mm-hmm. you don't really take her seriously. And then I think it's this chapter where harry finally understands her i think this is also part of why later on in book six like when he goes to slug club dances or or parties whatever like luna is the natural person to go to as his date like i think this 
Not exactly a person that he wants to go with. Well, I, I think, like, he asks her without even thinking, and then he's like, oh, that was all right. Or, or, like, when she sits in the compartment with them, he's like, no, this is good. And I think you're right that it's this last interaction of being like, oh, wait, she's my friend. I didn't even realize it. And well, she is. I mean, where do you start this book? You start them on the Hogwarts Express at the very beginning of the book, mm-hmm. and it's Harry, Luna, Neville, Ginny. Mm-hmm. Which four students are in the Department of Mysteries <laughs> right, right. writing with him to the end? Right. Those four. Right. So, I mean, she set that up way early. Yep. And yeah. maybe we'll see it in the next book, too, when he, when he sits with them in the compartment and everyone tries to be like, oh, come sit with us. We're cooler than them. He's like, no, you're not. You didn't go to the Department of Mysteries with me. They did. So, looking ahead to Half-Blood Prince, um, I will go out on a limb and say, not my favorite book. Uh, which is a really negative way to start this. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I kind of agree. Whenever I think of the series, it's kind of fades into my memory a little bit compared to the other ones. I will say this. It's a book that has some parts that I love to go back and reread. But as a whole, I'm not a huge, huge fan. Um, and we'll get into that when we get into it. But I, I will also say this. The first two chapters... I had a very different reaction to it on my first read mm-hmm. that I will on this upcoming read. Interesting. So there's a little teaser, as they say, <laughs> as they say in the business. So you get a little bit of that. But no, it, it's it's an interesting book. Obviously, we learn a lot about Voldy in it. We get a lot more Draco Malfoy in mm-hmm. the book. We are introduced to Horace Slughorn in the book. Mm-hmm. We see the twins joke shop. Always a fun time to be at the joke shop. We get a lot more interaction with Harry and Dumbledore uh-huh. in this book. So if there was one thing that you can kind of pick out and talk about looking ahead, what would it be? Definitely the interactions within the Pensieve. Once again, I love the Pensieve. It might be my favorite magical item. And I think it's really interesting to see Voldemort's past lay out and see how... His past shaped his present and his future, especially the obsession with the Horcruxes. Um, I, I just think it's really interesting knowing, like, in general, people's pasts, usually their experiences or their relationships or whatever, influence how they act as an adult. And I think it's really wise of Dumbledore to go back and to look at those things. And just seeing younger Voldemort is just fascinating. So cool. I'm so glad they they have that in, in the books. That's what I look forward to. I always uh, remember this book because I literally rediscovered Harry Potter in my life. Mm. And I just finished book five. And I'm like, you know, I wonder if they put out the next Harry Potter book yet. I don't even know. And <laughs> I, I seriously, and I looked it up. And I swear to you. Half-Blood Prince came out, like, the very next week. Oh, my gosh. Like, the very next week. Like, I called my local bookstore, and I'm like, can I reserve a copy? And they're like, yeah. (laughs) And it was dropping the next week. And I was like, this is crazy. I very much know what my first reaction to the book was. And I cannot wait to share it with you all on chapter one. Um, No. that I know I've said it's not my favorite book. I am very much looking forward to getting into it. I know Molly and Jen are particularly big fans of this book. Yeah. 
So I'm excited to get their input on everything that happens in Half-Blood Prince. And I I just, I, I'm ready to go. I can't wait. <laughs> and luckily, we'll be getting to it next week. <laughs> so. Is that how that works in the bit? Yep. <laughs> so we will be back with chapter one. And brand new intro. Brand new intro, brand new break sound. Uh, yeah, we, we have some fun things in store for, for book six. So, uh, as always, thank everyone for listening, and I never thought we'd get to book six. <laughs> but It's not as long as book five. Was. It's not as long as book five. Um, but no, I, I never thought we'd get this far in the podcast, just because, um, you know, I can't believe this many people actually want to listen to us talk about Harry Potter. I know, it still boggles so, my mind sometimes. So thank you to everyone who does tune in every Saturday, or whichever day uh, you listen. It really means a lot to us uh, that we've gotten so much support. Thank yeah. you for all of the comments on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify. We will tr- Sharing episodes, commenting episodes. Yeah, um, participating in all of the polls at... We try to share all that stuff as much as we can. Uh, I should be sharing the polls on here more often. I should discuss poll results. <laughs> maybe we'll get back to that in book six. But yeah, we really, really appreciate it. And um, we would not be at book six without all of your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to continue to support, repost, comment, let us know your thoughts. And um, as always, there's uh, support the podcast uh, link wherever you're listening to this where you can donate financially that helps a lot it's a lot of time and effort that we put into this <laughs> and leave a review wherever you can too that really helps us out in growing the podcast and getting out to more and more people so with that we will end order of the phoenix <laughs> and we will be back next week with half blood prince bye Thank you for listening to Hogwarts, a podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click the subscribe button on your preferred podcasting app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hogwarts a Pod.